And I learned that because of what my mother taught me in our dining room. And she didn't know she was teaching me and she wasn't trying to teach me. It's just how us as kids, we pick these things up from our parents as we grow. And I think the most important things I learned the independence and to be resourceful. And that's something that I think is uh, really beneficial for me in my adult life. You're listening to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, a podcast for those who are in and around the hospitality industry who love, live, and breathe what they do. You can join us for candid and unscripted conversations with hospitality experts and founders as we go deeper into their personal stories while they're sharing their triumphs and trials that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and you're listening to an episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. Now, let's begin. All right, Nathan, welcome back to a minute with minute on Slick Talk. And we're going to jump into the question today of what is the biggest misunderstanding when it comes to what minute does and doesn't do? Great question, Will. I I think the biggest misunderstanding is probably that we do more than just noise. Uh, I know we'll cover that in another minute with minute. So for now, I'm going to major specifically on the noise feature itself. Many people think that we can let you know when there's noise in your unit and that's the end. But what we can actually do uh, with our pro account is import the data for your guests when they're staying, what's their phone number, et cetera, and then allow you to automate communication with that guest when there's a noise event. So what we hear from many of our users is after sending even one text message to the guest, letting them know that there's noise, they tend to quiet down because they don't realize that they're being noisy. So in many cases, if you use our automation, you may actually resolve the problem with no input from yourself. Just an automated message from the system asking them to quiet down, and then the noise issue is over. I love it. You heard it here first, folks. A minute with minute, and now back to the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. And I have a man, a guest, a legend on the podcast who really needs no introduction, Bill. Come on. Like, you are... The man that's always on stage you have two successful podcasts you've built an incredible conference in our industry so bill faith the one and only is here today to join me on the show we're going to dive into your story but bill i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join me today thanks for finally having me for those of you listening i've had to email will 37 times like literally bud foxing him to get on the podcast if you get know who <laughs> bud fox is from wall street <laughs> Charlie Sheen pounded Michael Douglas. What was it like 372 days in a row? And then finally I'm here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. 37 <laughs> emails later or like one text or actually it was more like one comment on Tyler Kuhn's Facebook post. And it was like, all right, shoot, I got to get Bill on. I love Tyler, but if he's on your freaking podcast before <laughs> I am, that's kind of a slap in the face. No, I'm just kidding. Tyler. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to you, Tyler. Bill. Tyler I'm Kuhn, Savvy Realty in Western North Carolina. No. Can you imagine? It just goes into a whole average. <laughs> no, it's just it's so cool because you and I have gotten to interact. We first got to interact actually on Clubhouse back in the day where mm -hmm. a lot of us have met. And that built into finally meeting you in person at the first STR, STR Wealth Conference last year. And man, one, that was a great event. Two, it was awesome to meet you in person. And it's been a great relationship of just getting to know you and work with your, your podcasts and everything that you're building behind the scenes is just so impressive and incredible. But I feel like I haven't gotten to know 
the backstory of Bill Faith and where you kind of came from. I know about the limousines and just the other adventures you've been in, but I guess from your perspective, where does everything really truly begin when it comes to entrepreneurship and building this life and business that you have today? I guess 1978, honestly, that's when my mother and father got divorced and mm -hmm. we, my mom packed up Paso Robles, California, and we moved over to Bakersfield, California, the armpit of the West coast in California. And I kind of learned entrepreneurship from her. She was a teacher. We weren't poor by any means. I'm not going to go down that path of like poor Bill Faith. He grew up, he didn't have shoes and stuff, but she probably never made more than 35, 40 grand as a teacher, you know, in the, the seventies and the eighties in her life. But you know what? She, she taught me independence. I was a latchkey kid. If anybody's older and knows what that term means, like from third grade, I was taking care of myself. She worked two jobs. She was a teacher. And I'll never forget during the holiday season, she would work at Mervyn's, which is a store long gone now, but like a low end department store, kind of like a Sears or something like that to, to make ends meet. And, but I never felt that will I, she did everything for me when I was in the big brother program and Chris, my big brother, he took me out to this driving range and he's the guy that introduced me in, into golf, which has played a huge role in, in my success in life. And I remember she joined like the 10 cup golf club for me, like a country club. Cause it was right next to my high school. So I could literally walk, we couldn't afford a car. So I'd get out of, uh, out of class in high school and I'd walk a half a mile to the country club and they took care of me. They'd let me have burgers and stuff. Cause they knew my mom couldn't afford all that stuff. And kind of fast forward, my mom, when I was sometime, maybe early high school, she, she bought a preschool and I don't know how she afforded to buy a preschool back then, but she started an on and I was pulling weeds and helping her set up the room. And I remember seeing her on our dining room table. It was just like ledger after ledger, no QuickBooks back then. She's writing out ledgers and doing P and L's that I know financial statements that I know now. And that's kind of, she had me involved in that stuff. And and I remember talking to her later, she passed away four, five years ago. And later in life, I was fortunate enough to have some success. And I retired her to the villages in Florida. If anybody's a golfer, you've probably heard of the villages, America's friendliest hometown. And it's the largest contingent of STDs too. And the largest consumption of Anheuser-Busch in one area. It's wow. like a party down there with hundreds of thousands of retirees. And I remember I went down there one time as her health was just starting to deteriorate and it was probably three trips before I had to move her to Nashville and start taking care of her. And she just told me how proud she was of what I had achieved and all the startups I'd done and everything I'd done. My mom and I were, I wasn't raised to be emotional and just, I'm not a, I'm not the huggy kissy guy. I'm not the person that's going to kiss somebody on the cheek at a conference or even give a lot of hugs because I'm just. I'm not adverse to it. It's just not the way that I was raised. And I remember I just started crying on her couch and because I was so indebted to her. She never sat down and taught me anything. Like you said, Hey, Bill, this isn't your, the how to, how do you invest? How do you do these things? That's not what this is about. And she wasn't either, but I just told her how much I appreciated what she did. And she's like, I'm just glad that you learned it because I just wanted you to see what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that was probably one of the most emotional days I've ever had in my life outside of the day that she passed away. So I learned it from her and she put me in places to where I could learn it from other people. She got me access. And I think that's one thing that I've really learned in my adult life. And I saw it when I played golf with a guy named Jay Jacoby. So I was 17. I think I was a junior sophomore actually in high school down in Southern California. 
and he owned a company called American Pacific T-shirts. And he gave me four T-shirts. And it was back like with the Zubaz pants and the T-shirts were like, almost looked like they were airbrushed, like Venice yeah. style. And he gave me like a Michael Jordan, a Carl Malone, a Charles Barkley, and a Magic Johnson T-shirt. I saw him two months later, Will, and he's like, how are the T-shirts? I'm like, I kept the Magic Johnson because I was a Laker guy, but I sold the other three. And he's like, what'd you get for him? I said, 20 bucks. And my mom, and we're playing what's called a junior am, like a pro-am, but with kids, right? We get done and he's all, let me meet your mom. And because I didn't drive, my mom drove me down to LA from Bakersfield. Long, so I'm, I'll speed this up, but we went to his house. He filled her Ford 1986 Ford Tempo with t-shirts and said, sell them. And he said, Roberta, all I ask of you is that you keep track of everything. And I just want to be paid back my cost on the t-shirts, which are like four bucks. Bill, you can sell them for 10, you can sell them for 20, you can sell them for 30, whatever. You guys keep the rest so you can afford to keep coming down here. And long story short, I mean, within like four, three, four months, we're, I was over the summer. So like in September, October, we're in football season, right? I had like three of my best friends, Michael Knight, Butch Henson, Kevin Thomas. I'll never forget him. I had them go to, I went to West Bakersfield. They're at Bakersfield High School, North High School. They're at South High School. They're selling the t-shirts at football games. And we're selling $1,000 a week in t-shirts. And so what happened is when I went to UCLA, I started doing the same thing with pizzas. So I lived in Hedrick Hall, 18 stories, probably a thousand kids in there. And the guy would show up on his moped with that little hot box of like 10 personal pan pizzas for five bucks. And I looked at Lance Graville, my roommate, and I said, dude, this is fucking stupid. I'm like, dude, we're taking my truck down there. We're going to pre-order these things to get a hundred of them at five bucks. And we're going to deliver them floor to floor at 10 bucks. And within a month before I left, I was only at UCLA for like six months. I dropped out and turned <laughs> professional. But we had like, once again, everybody on my golf team, we had like seven, eight people that were selling these things in their halls. And I learned that because of what my mother taught me in our dining room. And she, di she didn't know she was teaching me and she wasn't trying to teach me. It's just how us as kids, we pick these things up from our parents as we grow. Yeah. To kind of dive into that a little bit more, your mom, one, sounds incredible, and two, I'm kind of curious, did you have other, did you have siblings or was it just you? She was an only child. I was an only child. So, I mean, all effort goes into that one kid. My mom was spending back in the day, I don't know, 1500 bucks. I remember she went with me. I won my first national junior golf championship my sophomore year in Ashland, Kentucky. It's by Huntington, West Virginia. It's the steel part of the country. It's basically like Southern Pittsburgh, if you will. And... I don't even know what those things cost back then, but I was going like at least driving down to San Diego, LA during the summer, every week for tournaments. I was like on the PGA tour for high schoolers and juniors and, I, and she couldn't afford that. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was very wealthy and he didn't leave her anything. And he was one of the eight founders of super eight motels and she did it all on her own. And I think the most important things I learned the independence and to be resourceful. And that's something that I think has been really, uh, really beneficial for me in my adult life. All right, Slick Talkers, now for another dynamic sponsored duo of the podcast. I would love to introduce you to Vintory and Safely. About Vintory, we've had Brooke Fotts on the podcast, who is a founder, multiple times, and him and his team know numbers. They know data and they know marketing. They know how to help property managers just like you scale and grow their business by adding more inventory, aka more homes, into your rental program that drive the bottom line. For all of you listeners that want to learn how to scale and grow your inventory, you can get a free digital copy of Brooke's book, 
called From Zero to 500 Properties in Five Years. And for an added bonus, if you would do a demo of the Vintory platform, you'll get a $50 gift card to Amazon. Now that's a sick deal. And now to touch on our friends at Safely.com. Safely.com helps property managers just like you and I protecting the homes that they manage from structural damage to content damage and of course bodily injury. This means plates, linens, cups, couches, tables, curtains, walls, and of course your guests themselves are protected. And this helps you by scaling your company in order to ensure that you are retaining owners and inventory in your program. If anything is broken or if anyone is hurt, you are able to make a claim through Safely and within three business days you can get instantly paid out to replace any items and settle any claims that happen on site without having to deduct from your owner's payouts. That's why I call these guys the dynamic sponsor duo. And thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Check out their offers in the show notes and back to the episode. How does that apply to you now? Because you're a dad and you have two daughters, I believe. How does that impact kind of your way of teaching? Because I feel like a lot of parents, like I'll even use mine for an example of like kind of try to hide some stuff at, when you're a kid. Like, oh, you don't need to see this. You're a kid. You need to go play and do whatever. And which I was kind of grateful for. But there are moments where I was like, oh, man, I wish I kind of got exposed to that earlier on just for the sense of like being able to apply it as an adult or not have like that shock when you turn 18 and you're like, whoa, never saw that when I was growing up or whatever. Sunday, I flew out on a trip to the West Coast Sunday and Monday, and we had lunch, family lunch on Saturday. And it was not a fun lunch. I won't say which daughter, one of my daughters literally was going to take the meatball from the appetizer. There were three meatballs. There's four of us there. And she was taking an entire meatball. And I said, do not take that. I said, and she took it. And I said, you need to put that back. And then my one the other daughter started crying because it was a horrible lunch. And we got home and my wife's like, why are you dying on that bridge? I said, because she directly defied an order that I gave to her. And I think one of the things I learned a while back is my wife and I were becoming best friends with our kids. And I love that. We have tremendous relationships with our children, but we probably weren't disciplining them enough. Even they're like, they're almost perfect girls. Right. <laughs> and I said, honey, I gave her, I told her, do not take it. She took it. I am going to die on that bridge because she's trying out for her high school soccer team. She's an athlete. She plays travel soccer. If she does that with her coach, she gets benched and kicked off the team. If she does that with an employer, she gets fired, right? And I said, they need to understand those things because these flowery children that are being raised today that don't have any savage in them are things that irritate me about our society today. It just takes a little bit of savage to get ahead. And to take a quote from Dana, whatever his name is, that from the UFC. And uh, Dana White. Yeah, exactly. My youngest daughter, when I watch her play soccer, she's learned some of that savage. She'll throw an elbow. And I don't want her <laughs> to cheat or do anything. Keep them down, push hard with your shoulder, that type of stuff. Yeah. And I think they, they see those things and they learn. So I never cuss at home. I know a lot of you that listen to my podcast or have seen me on stage. I'm real I, and it's part of just who I am, whether you like it or not. I quit dipping five years ago. I never dipped at home. And if anybody has ever had a nicotine addiction, that's something that's really hard not to do. Sure, I would get in my truck and I'd go drive around the block away by myself to go have a dip or whatever it is. I, I don't cuss. My wife and I do drink wine at home, but it's usually after they go to bed and we'll have a bottle of wine sit out by the fire pit. So just the things we don't want them to really see us do a lot, but we talk about everything. We talk about money. So... I've been very 
heavily influenced from, I don't want to call him a friend, I'll call him an acquaintance, Dave Ramsey, and teaching them. They're on commission. They see the money that I put when I pay them 12,700 bucks and now 14 grand a year for working the conference. If they came to that first conference that you came to, they, they were there checking people in and folding t-shirts and preparing. They see what I contribute to their 529. They know about money. Yeah. They've been to every one of our houses. They are smart. They're smart enough to look it up on Zillow and see what it's worth and see, hey, mom and dad are millionaires and they have, how many houses do they have? It's, but they 100% know they're not allowed to talk about that with their friends. Mm. Does that make sense? I think exposing children to the, an adult life and what to expect is really important in the teenage years when they get into high school and to be formative. I know like my wife had no exposure to that from her parents. Her mother was as a kept woman by her own admission that mm -hmm. never had the birds and the bees talk, never talked about money, didn't know how to balance a checkbook. And I remember I kind of learned my senior in high school, Don Gabbitas was uh, my golf coach, but he also, he created a curriculum in a class called on your own where it was about the birds and the bees. It was about balancing checkbooks. It was about credit, that type of stuff. So like my kid, my girls have credit cards. They started with a green light card, like a debit card that we just put money on. Now they have an Amex Platinum. And not because it's, oh my God, an Amex Platinum. It's because that's what I use and I'm building their credit. So when they turn 18, they will have 850 credit scores. And we talk about the importance of that. My oldest daughter, for her 16th birthday, got my wife's five-year-old Land Rover Discovery. And I remember when we posted the bow on it and it was five years old with like 100,000 miles. And one person on social media, oh, fucking people in Brentwood get Range Rovers when they turn 16 nowadays And this lady from Houston. And I'm like, fuck off. She's 4.25 GPA. She's a travel soccer athlete. She's going to college to play soccer, the recruiting process. She's the yeah. perfect fucking kid. And by the way, She's paying for her own fuel and insurance, right? And that's something that's really important to me. And I didn't go through that because I was an athlete and my mom paid for that for me. And the way it's presented is what's critical. So on the flip side, Bria's parents, she had to buy her own truck. She had to pay for her own gas, pay for her own insurance. And we both turned out pretty okay, but two different yeah. approaches, right? For me, it's just getting them exposed now. And I'll tell you, my oldest daughter who 33 ACT and like 4.25 GPA. And she's decided not to go be an athlete in college. She wants to become a surgeon. She can go pretty much anywhere she wants. She doesn't want to go to like MIT or Harvard or something, but she can go to Belmont here in Nashville or so she could even get in. She got pre-accepted to like go to John Hopkins university or whatever. Mm. And I said, Hey, I'll give you a quarter of a million dollars not to go to college. Dead serious. You can come and work for me, learn the business. I give you 250,000 bucks. Here's how much is in your 529. Here's how much is in your investment accounts that I have for you. If you want to go and start your own business. And she's like, thank you. I don't want to do what you do. I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to become a surgeon and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's cool too. I'll support you with that. But I'm not paying. Like if she goes to, if you've ever heard of Belmont University here in Nashville, it's 55K a year to go to Belmont. Yeah. I said, I'm paying state tuition. So since you're not going to play soccer and get a scholarship, that means I'm paying like 15 grand a year. So you're going to have to come up with 40,000 bucks a year. You're either going to have that in debt, which is going to saddle you when you get out of college. And then you're going to add like another 400,000 to become once you get into medical school, or you can get academic 
scholarships. And so now that since the soccer deal is done, it's like a whole nother business that we've had to start is going through and applying and all these external academic scholarships and that type of stuff. Kind of the one thing I do, Will, is everything that we go through in that process, I assimilate to either business or adult life with them to hopefully prepare them. And the only thing I've asked her is if you minor, please minor in either market, some type of marketing or business degree. Yeah. Because most surgeons I know, and you see this in our industry, and we see the ones that are business savvy, the David Kangs, the Neil Shaws that are in our groups and that type of stuff, but they're also trying to get out of doing what they're doing. Look at Rachel, perfect example of that. And so that's some things that I've tried to share with her to just prepare my kids for the future. Because my mom did it for me, but it was indirectly. I'm a little bit more direct with that. Yeah, I was going to say the comparison of like you and Bria being more indirect and like just being exposed and having to figure it out. Like you said, third grade, you're on your own. You're doing your own thing and having to spend for yourself to then now you have that experience that you're able to just apply and just say, hey, look, this is some very different routes. This is some very different exposure. It's very intentional. So it's very interesting to see like the two-sided coin for from like your growing up to how you're raising them. And it's really cool, actually, like to see the kind of legacy that it creates for not just like you, but their kids in the future and their families after that and so on and so forth. So, and it's hard, man, because I was a really bad boss for a really long time until I had a bad experience after I'd exited a company and had an earnout and had to work for an asshole to learn how to become a better boss. And I, and and luckily I had, I went through that experience about seven, about 10 years ago, actually, before they became teenagers. Cause I look back and like that conversation and standing what happened last Saturday, I shared that family experience with you. That's a hard thing for me to do because I'm probably tend to be way too easy, way too laid back, which isn't natural for me. And it's Mm -hmm. intentional to try to do that because of the experiences that I learned through being a shitty manager as an owner and an entrepreneur, specifically in the limo business. And it was, uh, it's something that's actually helped me become a better father as well. Well, speaking of limo business, I'm curious, after selling t-shirts and pizzas, when did you get exposed or not even exposed is probably the right word, but when did that entrepreneurship journey begin? When did you open up your first company and kind of walk me through that like light bulb moment that turned on where you're like, all right, we're going in and we're doing this. It really was Bell Aqua bikinis in 1993. I dropped out. Of, so I graduated high school in 91, full ride to UCLA, dropped out in spring of 92, turned professional in golf at the Long Beach Open where my idol at that time, Fred Couples, turned professional and won 3500 bucks like every other idiot 19-year-old drove back two and a half hours to Bakersfield and bought a $2,500 Rolex because I'd wanted a <laughs> Rolex Submariner forever. Now I'm flat broke again. I still have that Submariner, by the way, and it was paid twenty five hundred. It's probably worth about fifteen k now, so pretty decent investment. But I went to place the South American PGA Tour the winter. I didn't make it through Q School to get on what was called the um, the Nike Tour, not Nike Tour, whatever the first the Hogan Tour at that time, or the PGA Tour. So I did what a lot of the better players did. You either went to you went to South America and tried to play your way to play in Asia. So I went to South America for ten weeks. And we, were, we had a tournament just outside of Sao Paulo, and we couldn't afford the hotels. We stayed in housing. There was like 20 or 30 of us Americans that went down there. We stayed with the family. Literally in this adobe, like, two-room house. It was kind of weird. It was probably the lower end of the housing that we had to be. You're staying with a member of a country club. They didn't have that there. And this golf course actually had goats on it that were, like, eating the fairways and stuff. It was pretty 
not a high-end country club like people. It's not Augusta by any means. I was with Chad Kermel, who was a guy from Houston, and he spoke very good Spanish. I was muy piquito espanol. I could communicate, but I couldn't have extended in-depth conversations. Mm-hmm. This family in that second room, they would get up. That We'd wake up at 6, 7 a.m. on a practice round day, and they're gone. Like, where'd they go? And we heard this. We heard stuff, and we kind of opened the door, looked in. They're in there making sarongs and bikinis and swimwear and all this type of stuff it was really cool. They gave me a couple of pieces, just like JJ Kobe did to take home to my girlfriend at the time. And I went back and played the South America. I went, played South America again the next year, loved it down there and stay with the same family, except mm-hmm. for I had won like four times between in that 12 months and made some decent money, made like three, 400,000 bucks, had over a hundred grand in my bank account at 23. And Shout out to Buck Owens, if anybody knows who Buck Owens is, the country music legend and hee-haw star, if it wasn't for him. He gave me 25 grand to start my professional career. Because when I dropped out, my whole family was in education. They're like, we're not helping you. And I paid him back. And when I went back to that family, I'm like, hey, loved your swimsuits. They were just selling them down at the market on the beach and that type of stuff. If you've ever been out of the country, people say you drugs, trinkets, whatever, up and down the beach. They were selling sarongs and that type of stuff. I said, I'd like to buy some of these and take them home. I bought like $2,000 worth, which I couldn't fit them. I thought I could fit it all in my suitcase. That's a lot when I'm paying like four, six bucks a piece. And they shipped them via DHL back to my house. I spent my entire earnings and this is the crazy part of this. So we're, we're now into like January, February of 94. We're still like in chat rooms on AOL and stuff like that back in Netscape. Google doesn't exist. And I decided I'm going to start, I'm going to build a website. It took seven months and almost $200,000 to build an e-commerce platform. And I'll just speed up the story. I started drop shipping Bell Aqua bikinis. Did it for 18 months and got bought out by a small company called Venus Swimwear. And I thank God I had Jeff Stewart, who was the best man at my wedding, who was my CPA. So Bill, you got two options. You can have a royalty in perpetuity, or you can take whatever it was, $2.2 million up front. I said, dude, I want the cash. He's like, you go to Vegas too much. Let's <laughs> don't take the cash. And I was partying and playing golf and going to Vegas. And I was a big gambler and that type of stuff. And I took the, the, the royalty in perpetuity. And wow. It was probably one of the things that changed my entrepreneurial life. I got a check last month. It's dropped way down, but it's still over $3,000 a month. They still use a couple of designs and randomly, I'm not going to take credit for it, but was Mm -hmm. one of the first people to do for all you women out there separates to where you could buy a small orange bottom and you could buy a D cup, a large, whatever, black and white polka knot to go on top because before that they were all together. You couldn't separate the bottoms and the tops. And it just happened randomly because I didn't know any different and literally just stuff would come in boxes and I didn't know how to merchandise and all that type of stuff. So it kind of happened by accident. And that was one of the things that at that time Venus was not doing that. Nobody was doing that. Made it way harder to manage inventory and size runs, but way better for the consumer. And it was one of the first things I learned about trying to eliminate friction for the consumer. And I'm not going to get into that how to stuff, but it's one of the reasons for those of you for, and that have 
websites, whether it's in the STR space, the middle midterm space, anything, why I don't like websites and why I drive traffic to individual sales pages, it's to remove friction. Mm. And like, that was kind of the first time in 94 that I experienced that. That was kind of the impetus to start everything. Shortly after that, I quit playing golf and met this curly blonde haired girl when everybody goes home from college on Thanksgiving and everybody goes out and parties like on Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. I met this girl and two girls, actually my, my best friend, Rob Thompson, and I wanted to go out with this girl and he wanted to go out with the other girl. Long story short, the other girl is now my wife and I took her out <laughs> to caddy for me for about five months, played not even that long, played 12 tournaments in the five previous years of playing professional golf. I'd missed three cuts. In Asia, PGA Tour, Nike Tour, South America, everywhere, I missed 12 cuts in a row once I met her. And I said, you know what? I think it's time to give it up. And then we started Wild Bill's Texas Smokehouse, a restaurant together, and I became a college golf coach. Holy crap. What a journey. So I'm not going to age myself a little bit, but 94, when you're building this e-commerce site, I wasn't even born yet. So You're still dangling it, from ball to ball at that time. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I was probably not even a thought. My, my mom and dad were too busy with all my sisters. Well, I'm going to be day. 50 in like nine days. 50. Happy early birthday. This will be out after your birthday. So anyone listening, Bill's birthday passed. But that's just wild to think. $200,000, seven months for an e-commerce site. You could do that in couple hours today like and for 50 bucks so to think of how much has changed is wild it's i can wild. go to shopify and by noon it's 10 a.m my time by noon literally yeah. be up and running with ups code zip code everything ready to everything. go to ship yeah that's wild it's insane so with the restaurant i'm i know in kind of your story in 2015 you got uh, i think you bought your first short-term rental property and so from the restaurant, you've had a limo business, you had a glow in the dark golf business. I'm curious, did all of this happen at once or did you enter, stop, enter, stop, or not stop, but like enter a business, sell, enter a business, sell, enter a business, sell, or did you kind of build out this empire of like restaurant, golf, limos, etc., going into multiple facets? But I feel like they could kind of feed themselves in a good way. Like if you're at a restaurant, great. Where do you want to go for entertainment activities? You go to the glow in the dark golf. I've um, never done the same business or industry twice. A lot of it has, it's the exact same way that I invest in real estate today. I don't care if it's a boutique hotel, if it's a single family home at the beach mountains, I've done commercial, I've done gold lead certified industrial warehouse for one of my businesses. I built it, rehabbed it, all that stuff. The one thing that I learned when I built my first big business, and I've done 27 startups with 19 exits, and I still have three businesses that I've turned into an annuity to where that's part of my long-term retirement plan. Planning for the future, folks, is extreme. I don't sell this, but planning that's for the future good. is extremely important. And to have a plan that coincides with your life and your spouse, your life Wife and business, they all have to commingle together. There's no separation of church and state here. So restaurant business was another Jeff Stewart thing. I'd quit playing golf and, hey, man, what are you going to do with your money? I don't know. I've got these people. They are in the restaurant business and boom, we did that. We hated it though. So mm -hmm. I, And that's one of the problems. So I go fast and I think speed for an entrepreneur is an incredible trait to have. I think going yeah. fast but not rushing. Not It's like John Wooden talks about 
knowing what your optimum speed is to operate or to play basketball in. And I went to the John Wooden basketball camp and I believe in his pyramid of success to this day, but you have to sustain control, right? It's like if you drive a car and you're going around turns, you should feel when you start to get on that line of getting out of control. And the question is, are you going to keep your foot on the accelerator? Are you going to ease off just a little bit so you can sustain control? I want to go as fast as I can in everything that I do and sustain control. So I've, that's why I've done so many startups. The restaurant business was the worst business I was in. I went from one primary restaurant and then I had five satellite locations within 11 months. I sold that in 18 months. I, I wow. found out that I wanted to do things that I liked. I found out that speed was critical to growth. And I just kept growing a lot of small businesses and exiting or bringing in friends and or friends. Family never worked out very well, but friends and I would become friends just like with Chris that works for me now. Chris has ownership in my companies and multiple of them. And that's, I will, hopefully him and I will be together forever. John, one of my high school best friends, he still runs Bulldog Auto detailing that I started when I was playing professional golf. This is right around mm -hmm. the same time as Bell Aqua. Uh, you know, he's turned it into a $2.8 million business and I get a check every single month. That's better than doing an exit. That's the perpetuity with Venus that yeah. Jeff talked me into, right? So I look at those things and I'm, I've never really targeted specific businesses to get into. I had no idea I was getting in the glow in the dark miniature golf business. It didn't exist. But what happened is I look at opportunities just like I look at investing in real estate today. I'm investing in the best opportunity I can find. That means mm -hmm. I have to look in commercial. I have to look in industrial. I have to look in short-term rental. I have to look at multifamily, all of those things. A lot of people think the trip I probably just did, oh, Bill's out looking for homes. No, it's multifamily that I'm looking for, right? I got into a lot of things, and the one that really changed my life was the glow-in-the-dark miniature golf business, and it was a pivot. So I was a college golf coach, had sold the restaurant, was coaching a D2 university, Cal State University of Bakersfield, on a D1 level and competitiveness. We were ranked number one in D2 and probably a top 15 program in D1. And I started teaching in a driving range. And I learned that I, when you charge $175 an hour, it's great when you're 25 years old and it's great to teach for eight hours, but you have to be there every single day. And after about three or four months of being there seven days a week, oh my God, I'm making good money from what I'm doing, but I'm chained to this driving range. I've read an article about this thing called glow range, which was a, it's basically a driving range game where you hit balls into fiber optically illuminated targets. Flew to Phoenix. Saw a corporate outing they did for NCAA basketball coaches that night. Got to meet like Dean Smith and some huge basketball coaches that were there, which were kind of cool. And I said, hey, I want to bring this to Bakersfield, California and open it to the public. So long story short, the stuff that I do in my real estate, Will, where I do the things that other people won't do, the added amenities and just the crazy stuff I did with Glow Range. All they had were music, a target, and a golf ball. And it was cool. It was at night. It was flying through the, and just to preempt Reg Booth, my partner sold the technology to Top Golf, and that's what they use even to this day. But when we put it in Bakersfield that first night, it was me and Bria, Kevin Brewster, 16 year old kid picking up our golf balls. I had dollar draft beers. I had music blaring. I had a sure microphone. Actually, I'll never forget it. We had this board and a projector with a football screen, and we're manually moving the ball. We had color coded our stalls. The games and stuff you do at Top Golf today were birthed at Glow Range. Mm -hmm. I, Reg Booth, Bree and I bought the franchise from him. The average golf ball at a driving range, if you ever go buy and spend 10 bucks for a bucket of balls, is 28 cents a ball. I was getting $5 a ball. 
at the glow golf business. Long story short, he gave me half a million dollars, said, I want to become 50-50 partners with you. That's not for you. That's for you to open 10 more of these around the country. Everyone failed. Wow. He called me for another meeting. Failed within like four months. He called me for another meeting. I flew to Wichita, Kansas to meet with him. He said, can you figure out how I can make money on my $7.5 million golf ball? He had $7.5 million into this golf ball. And I found a place in Michigan where I could buy a prefab glow-in-the-dark miniature golf course. And we sprayed, we put it in the shopping mall. We spray painted it. Boom box, a cash box, went to Home Depot, bought a utility table, put painter, that plastic painter sheathing drop cloth all around the windows, went to uh, Spencer's Gifts, bought some black lights, and made a glow-in-the-dark miniature golf course. That was about a $37 million business. For wow. We had a 13-year run with it and basically shut it down during COVID. And that's when I learned we had 782 employees at one time. I didn't like having that many employees. I didn't want to have that big of a business ever again. And that's kind of when I started just re reevaluating my life and building something that I wanted for a future. Um, and coincided, if you remember this year at the SGR Wealth Conference, the first day when I had John Bairden in the front row, who's been a huge impact on my mm -hmm. life and helped me reshape the intention of my outcome and which helps me kind of distill down to those daily decisions of what I'm going to do to help achieve that outcome. And that's kind of when my life fundamentally changed in my early to mid forties. And it's been pretty good to actually have a plan and to be able to execute that with my spouse. Being a hundred percent united is the key. And because a lot of those startups were just chasing money or people would present an opportunity and Three of them failed out of the 27, yeah. not like bankruptcy failed, but three, three failed. And there's, I think, I believe that we are all presented with three to five significant opportunities in our life. And it's just what the good Lord blesses us with. I think everybody gets it. doesn't matter if you grow up on whatever side of the railroad tracks. Most people don't see it though. And I think because my, the way I was raised with my mother and my independence and the people that. I was fortunate enough to be around as an athlete and those types of things that I learned and really from my mom to see those opportunities and to seize them. And I've been fortunate to grab three of them in my mm -hmm. life. And would you consider short-term rentals and everything you're doing today to be one of them? I wouldn't say short-term rentals are. I would say the plan that John Baird and I put together that was the impetus for this thing here mm -hmm. and restructuring my life around a time. I don't know. It might be, Will. I don't know. I would. So there's, I'll just tell the story. There's a guy in this industry that was the first one to do this. And he was a client of mine in the limo space. And then he was a client of mine with STR University. And he's probably the most brilliant person in, in this industry. His name's Richard Furtag. And it, he could be the $10 million man. He could have dominated this entire industry. He didn't want to. He wanted to go and do what he's doing with Stomp Capital and all that type of stuff for whatever reason. And he's really the one that exposed me to this. And Rich, Chris and I, he started short-term rental university. Then he kind of quit on it. Then he wanted to come back. And like we had his first boot camp in my office and Chris and I put the whole thing together. And then about two years later, I would say Richard and I had a falling out. We don't speak anymore. I'm not going to get into those details, but it took Chris and my social media manager at that time about two years to convince me to come in because I was doing it better than he was. And my track record of successful businesses versus other people 
that are in this that had unsuccessful businesses and got into it because it was easier. All these different types of things. It was June and COVID of when I started doing this after I'd been investing for five years and I had the track mm-hmm. record to come in and prove it. And it kind of goes back to, I think it was re- really probably Chris. It was Richard introducing me to it and that seed, but really Chris saying, hey, you're doing this better than anybody else we see and know of that's out here. And it, but, and it's not on scale. That's the fundamental difference for me. If you remember back to the clubhouse days, I was the black sheep mm-hmm. because everybody else was arbitrage management. Yeah. Mike was co-hosting and I'm the only guy talking about finances and buying luxury properties until Rachel jumped in. And then like Rachel and I were the only people talking about, Hey, we want to make as much money as we can with the least amount of properties and the least amount of work. And people are like, you're fucking crazy. No, I'm not. It fits into my plan. I make more money than the guy that has a hundred units, 101 bedrooms. And I work a 10th of the time. Yeah. Yeah. The operations piece with that is, is way more and the nightly rates, all the stuff. We all know that obviously it's a heavier lift with littler or less amount. Of, I just of literally recorded a podcast this morning for STR Unfiltered, Will, and it was about my trip and this multifamily that we found. Financially, incredible. Cash flow, IRR, the reposition, the cap rate, everything, incredible. The time and effort to get it to that is not worth it for us. The people that are involved would be involved in this project. So gotcha. a lot of people just see the numbers and the financials and say, I'm in. There's yeah. way more that goes into it than that. The t- that time commitment, at least for me, is the most valuable commodity that I've got to protect. How do you, I'm a big fan of this topic. I, and I was doing a fireside chat with Dave Krause with Rent Responsibly just a couple weeks ago, kind of talking about designing your day, designing your life. How do you do that? How do you kind of build out your, I wouldn't say schedule, but more of getting rid of the term of work-life balance and calling it just life alignment? And how do you really kind of structure that? And so for a typical Bill Faith day, how do you structure, how do you design your day-to-day? Right there. Today's Wednesday. I just opened up to the middle of the book. And that's how I actually grade myself as well. If you see the grading over here. So I believe kind of in the Warren Buffett method, I write my my to-do list here, then I flip it over and I have priority number one. That's it. And I do this every day. So there's Thursday, right? Every day. But I also believe in planning on Friday for the following week. And I'll tell you, like in my mastermind group here in the short-term rental space, the hardest thing for people in my mastermind is to get them to commit to their accountability groups on a weekly basis and get me their P&L so we benchmark everything, the finances for the entire group by the 10th of the month. For me, it's about the planning component. And I didn't do this for the first 35 years of my life. And that's not true. I was very regimented as a golfer when I got into business because it kind of came fairly easy for me. And everything I did, I've been, except for like three or four times out of 27, I've had success. I wouldn't document. I didn't do SOPs. And I would just go from business to business. And I didn't have a plan. Once again, this was birthed with John Bairden. And to now have priorities set every single day to grade myself, that was the hardest thing for me to learn how to do. And then the Friday planning, my wife and I, my former social media manager branded it as faith Fridays. And she thought we were just drinking wine on Friday afternoons and going to do fun shit all the time. But even to this day, and that's part of that life plan. And I do this like my Montana retreat that I'm doing in a couple of weeks. It's all about yeah. that. My couples retreats, it's all about that. Learn that from John Bairden. 
When, when my wife and I became unified every Friday, and if I'm out of town on a Friday, it happens Thursday or Saturday, we have to make up for that. Yeah. We are, and I did a, a short session at the conference on this for the first time this year, which probably wasn't the best idea because it's too in depth to, to try to teach over a thousand people. But we audit the week and we plan the next week and then we're looking at the future. So everything yeah. is about the outcome for us. And you have the life side and you have the financial side. We've hit all of our financials. We still need to sustain yeah. Initially, I was going to retire when I'm 60. That's 10 years and two weeks away, right? Yeah. The financial plan were there, but now I've got my youngest daughter, which is 13 in eighth grade, finishing up in three weeks. And then she's got four years of high school. So kind of that life event of her graduating high school will determine our retirement now. Does that make sense? So you, you have to plan for weddings, plan for deaths, plan for taking care of people, all these things that potentially could pop up in our life from a financial perspective and a personal perspective. We audit that every week. And now it gives a lot of clarity in our decision-making. It's incredible how much better our decision-making is now. And that kind of ties back to this trip I just did. Not gonna make the one investment because it's just too much time. Dang, that's really good. That's really good. Cause I think a lot of people, I don't know, maybe choose this word carefully, but you talk about the opportunity moments, right? We, we get maybe two to three, really iconic opportunities in our life where we either decide to grab them or not. And I feel maybe today there's too many that present themselves and not the iconic opportunities, but the opportunity of just opportunities in general. And a lot of people grab anything like, oh yeah, this like, and I'm guilty of this. I've had to say no a lot more than I've said yes to a lot of things just because I was, yeah, let's do this and let's launch that and let's go this way and let's go this direction. Let's be blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden I'm spending a hundred thousand hours doing stuff that drive zero bottom line and don't even move the needle towards goals of sustainability and financial, personal, whatever it might be. I have a twin brother with Down syndrome and my, one of my goals is to get him fully with me being part of my life and my business and giving him that sense of freedom that I've had. And all these things I was doing never moved that needle at all. So with you kind of like talking about this alignment and auditing your week. I'm a big fan of Rob Deirdrick, who he kind of calls it the machine method where he's, he, he grades himself every day, health, wealth, and everything. And it's an intense, like it's an intense system. It's something that you really do have to get to a, a rhythm and system on. You have to be intentional. What's your, I don't know, what's your advice for anyone who could be listening and feels like maybe they're over presented with opportunities and overwhelmed. And there's, one direction here. How do you determine really where that? Because for me, I know for like our company, once we set our core values, that made like not just our company core values and mission statement where we like blare it on the wall and we look at it every day and whatever, but more of like truly who, what do we believe in as people that changed everything for us in a company standpoint. And now it's kind of applied to my personal and how I grade myself and make decisions. It's become a lot easier and it becomes a lot better and it gets better over time. How, what's your advice for anyone who maybe hears this and is in that state and it's kind of like, where the hell do I even begin? And how do I know what's true? And what, like where, I don't know, there's just so much that goes into it. So I think there's two things. Yeah. Number one for me is wife's approval. There's something about women's intuition. <laughs> if you saw that Facebook post I told you about right before we started, it's not just about the flood, about three paragraphs into that. I posted this yesterday on my personal Facebook page on May 2nd, if anybody wants to go back and look at it. It's one of the toughest times in my life. It was the flood, but I'd also just lost 
my mom's life savings and over a million dollars of my net worth in a Ponzi scheme to a guy I played golf with like three to four days a week that I trusted. My wife never liked him. She didn't know that he was going to steal from us, but she never liked him. So I think that women's intuition is a big deal. The second part is the intention. And under and when you're really intentional with what you're looking for, and I'll tell you, we're, I'm dealing with something that's challenging right now, Will. And it's the, it's, I've got my STR super team hoodie on, familiar with the super team. Yeah. But we have this thing called the war room. And it's more about who's not allowed in the war room than who's in the war room. And we have to be super intentional because it's like this huge, super high level mastermind and investment, you know, group together. And we can't just let everybody in, even though a lot of people would say it's expensive to get into. Let's just take the money and let's just make money that way. That's that would defeat the entire purpose. So I think it goes back to defining my the outcome of what we want out of life, yeah. not business, not personal. It's being very specific in defining what you want. So the first thing that people come to me when we go through this exercise, this will happen in Montana. I've only got 20 people, very small group. And I'm going to say, what do you want out of retirement? And they're going to say financial freedom and travel the world. Oh, great, yeah. great start. But that's the plane hovering around at 30,000 feet. Let's bring it down to 10,000 feet. Then let's put that thing on the runway and be very specific. I'm going to retire at what date? What, what am I going to do in retirement? How much money do I need? How much cash flow? How much debt am I comfortable with? Let's go through all those things. When we understand what we want, and that's, the, I think, the biggest problem for us as human beings, we don't really know what we want. So when we see that shiny object, oh, boom. And we're going to go squirrel, and we're going to chase after that. Yeah, I'm, I have a little bit, I have a, more than a little bit of that in me with real estate, which is a huge part. Probably my biggest company that I have today is build short-term rental wealth and my personal real estate ventures, my co-hosting business. So I'm like all in on real estate. So there's can be that shiny key syndrome in anything that's presented in front of us. We have to be able to see through that and really ascertain if that's going to fit into our plan. That's the problem, Will, is nobody has a plan. If you built out your plan with an intention and define that outcome, I don't care if you're fucking 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 70. You need to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. It gives you clarity to be, it makes you smarter today mm -hmm. to be able to see through those things that are really not that valuable for you. Do you feel like it gets better over time like or easier to make that decision or clarify? I'm 50, dude. I Somebody, John, if I meet John Barron when I'm 25, I got no fucking chance. Yeah. Dude, I'm playing golf. I'm making 300K a year. I'm a golf coach. I've already sold a business. I got this shit licked, man. <laughs> Do you think Rob Dearden, when he was a skateboarder, you know, when he, in his 20s, is as wise as he is today? No. And here's no. the thing. That's like, so that's, you bring up a great example. Dyrdek is a genius, incredible entrepreneur. But most people that are listening to this don't know who he is. So Google him or just turn on MTV and he's got like 37 <laughs> episodes of you know, like four different shows ridiculous on MTV and you see him in his hoodie and his flat bill hat and he's about my age, probably a little bit younger, mid forties. And you think that dude is just a skater idiot. Could be in, he's definitely in the top 1% of probably the smartest entrepreneurs on the face of the planet. Yeah. He's Don't insane. judge a book by its cover. 100%. Don't judge a deal by its cover. Don't judge a business opportunity by its cover. I, that's one of the, but going back to speed, Will, the ability to be decisive 
move quickly and understand that speed is a huge advantage on identifying if you should even look at that deal, that business, that person to hire, then getting through that process before you even dive in. Then speed's even more important as you're building and trying to scale, right? But it starts from that very first decision, back to that pyramid of success from John Wooden. How are you gonna go through and what is your process to determine if you should or you shouldn't? And that's all I'm gonna say, if you should or you shouldn't, and apply that to whatever you're looking at doing. Yeah. Should Bill grab that donut and put it in his mouth? No, Bill's already 70 pounds overweight. Bill, What Bill should do is put that donut down and get his fat ass next door onto the fucking elliptical or onto the Peloton or whatever it is, right? What should we or shouldn't we do? And we all have strengths and weaknesses in different parts of life. Right now, since COVID, my weakness has been my health. Everything else is on fire. Prior to that, it was my health. I was running 35 miles a week. How do I get back to doing that again? I have weaknesses yeah. just like everybody else. Dan, it's really good. I told you before recording, we have a way that we try to tie all the episodes together. And without telling the guests before you who you are and who's going to be after them, we ask them to ask you a question, not given any name or, or description. So the guest before you is Zach Buzacruz, who has the Behind the Stage podcast, a company called Spontaneous. He's in the Hospitality FM network. And his question, would you kind of answer it actually naturally in the beginning portion of the episode but his question goes what are one to two crucial pivots that happened in your life that if you did or did not make would have impacted where you are today number one was actually the glow golf business that was the the biggest one that started with glow range the driving range application and i failed 10 times and it really was it was the belief so understand i was number two i wasn't the ceo i wasn't the fan reg booth was the number one guy i was the number two and i failed 10 times. I would, Brie and I were still successful in our hometown of Bakersfield, California, like massively successful. But I failed 10 times in trying to grow and scale to really start the business. And he still believed in me to give me another $500,000 to start a new business with his product, that golf ball. That was the huge pivot to go from the residual income from Bell Aqua and Bulldog Auto Detailing at that time and Belloc was somewhat significant to making $300,000, $400,000 a year to scaling that business and making seven figures for the first time in my 30s. But also learning from a guy. That, so you got to understand the history of Reg Booth. He was the third franchisee into Pizza Hut, right? He owned half of Wichita. He, I saw his financials when we were going to create this, build this huge family fund center in Bakersfield before I moved to Nashville in 2003. And he was, at that time, he was worth half a billion bucks. That's a B, not an M, a B. It was the pivot, but it was also the humbleness that I learned from him. And there is part persona publicly, and there is things that happen differently with people privately. And when I met Reg, that pivot was huge, but it was also the, the pivot and the impact he had on my life because I didn't have that father figure. So I got, that's the two to answer the question. One was Glow Range to Glow Golf, the indoor glow-in-the-dark miniature golf business that Reg allowed me to do and I'd failed and he continued to believe in me. But it was also how he impacted me personally. That's really good. Now, without knowing who's next, what's your question for them? What kind of product do you think Will puts in his hair every morning? And how many <laughs> ounces is it? 
Would you be shocked if I told you I didn't put any product in? What is that? The something by something about Mary hairstyle or what is that? It's natural. This is really how I wake up. You I just ruined shower. my question. <laughs> that was a legit question. <laughs> I got a real question for you. All right. Yeah. How do you deal with professional adversity privately? And what I mean by that is, are you discussing the really bad things with your spouse? Are we sheltering our spouse? And I bring that up, Will, because I, one, another thing I learned from John Baird, and that was one of those things that helped me, is I didn't share stuff with my spouse until I went through that life plan building with John. She didn't know that in the limousine business in 2000, late 2008, early 2009, when we got crushed, that I essentially stole money out of our personal savings to make payroll twice. Like literally 15 grand out of our personal goes in Wednesday, payroll goes out, get credit card receipts, pay myself back on Monday because I didn't want her to worry about those things. Today, everything is on the table in those Friday meetings. So I love to find out how people are dealing with those tough times, the adversity with other people. Because most of the answer truthfully, being an entrepreneur is hard because we're on, we're solo. We're on that desert island by ourselves. And it's what leads to early death and obesity and all those types of things. Yeah, no, it's, wow. It's really good. And it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot too. So it's a really good question. I know we didn't get to talk a lot for like any of the podcast listeners that are watching either the live or going into the audio. We didn't talk a lot about short-term rentals and building a hospitality brand and all this stuff. And I'm sure there's probably going to be a day where I'm like, hey, Bill, we need to get a part two to just talk and geek out about. Because I, I, one thing I've always admired about you, and you kind of mentioned it about, about it in the podcast, is your, your marketing ability for your properties, not creating a big website that's all book direct, like creating an individual landing page where it's just as simple, it's easy, it's limiting friction, stuff like that. I love that talk. And so for any of the listeners, this is more of a message of like, obviously we didn't get a lot into that today, but I would love to have you back on and geek out about some of this stuff. Cause I know that's where a lot of us, but it's just so cool to get to know your story and to see the man behind the guy that's on stage and hearing, I love in the beginning of the episode, you're not an emotional guy or a huggy guy. We all saw you get off stage and hug the Minoan girls, Allie and Sage, and give them a farewell goodbye as they were leaving. Like we know that there's a Bill Faith that is in touch with personality and relationships. And what's funny therapy. about that, Will, I can't even tell you how many emails and DMs I got about how sweet that was that you told your, you gave your daughters a hug when they were leaving. <laughs> Unless you're in the know. They didn't realize yeah. that, that those were the Minoan girls. And when I sent an email out for about Minoan and I referred to them as the Minoan girls after the Miami retreat, and I got so much female hate mail for using that term Minoan girls. Mm -hmm. Hopefully whoever sent those emails saw that, you know what, I I love the Minoan girls. And yeah, that's a testament to how good they are at building relationships and something that I think a lot of us could take lessons from as business owners. For sure. For all the listeners out there, Bill is actually in tune with his emotions. He's not just this big guy that's all about business. It's there. I'm it's actually there. very emotional today, Will, and I get emotional over things like that. I almost started. Today, I was, no, saying, today no, was, I was just May 2nd where you're reflecting on the flood and everything on that, right? Or is there yeah, more to What I didn't put in that post is 
Reg Booth gave me and my wife $10,000 a month for seven months. Mm -hmm. Then my next door neighbor in that post, I literally a week prior bought a $90,000 Escalade ESV from my neighbor who owns the Cadillac dealership. And that car depreciated by 30K the day I drove it off the lot. He gave me every penny back, including he paid the tax and took the Escalade back. And we lost $680,000 in income immediately. And to have people to prop you up when you're down like that, it's, yeah. I wouldn't be here today if those people didn't take care of us when we went through those things. Somebody commented on on that post, oh, you should have six months worth of savings. I had fucking savings, but you know what? People still pitched in to help. And it's kind of some things going through COVID that I was able to repay a lot of that during COVID to help people, which makes me feel really good. I get emotional about people's successes and things that I'm able to play a small part in. And it's funny, a lot of people give coaches credit and I think the players should, but every great coach will tell you, you are the one that put in the effort. You're the one that was doing the workouts. You're the ones that were doing the drills. And I, we all like to be patted on the back, but when you can pass that along to somebody and see them thrive, that's the best feeling in the world. I get emotional when I see that stuff. And it's funny, people probably see those like posts. I see it in my Facebook group quite a bit. Hey, thanks Bill for helping us do this or that or whatever. And they probably think, oh, that's Bill asking them to post something so he can sell something. I like, that's the stuff I screenshot and I keep because that's what motivates me to keep doing, you know, what I do. And I think when you can find that motivation and harness that, and it's one of the things, if I can leave one thing about short-term rentals, it's why I only invest in what I believe in and places that I would stay at and places that I am, I I make financially driven decisions, but if I'm not going to invest into any business or any property that I wouldn't buy, I wouldn't be a client or I'm not interested in. Cause then if you lose that passion, yeah. you're not going to be fully committed to that business. And a short-term rental or a piece of real estate is every one of those is an individual business. So if you're not passionate about it, don't invest into it. That's great advice. For all the listeners that I obviously have everything and we're going to link it on the show notes, but if you had one spot for anyone who wanted to get to connect and reach out or just get to know more or be a part of your universe of content and discussions and education, where would you send anybody that was curious for that? Build short-term rental wealth everywhere, Instagram, Facebook group, Facebook website, all that type of stuff. Probably most people are connecting with me on Instagram at Bill Faith, that's F-E-F-A-E-T-H 73. But uh, you can find me pretty much everywhere that's out there and just shoot me a DM or a PM if you have a question. I am pride myself on probably being one of the most accessible people in our industry because you know I just want to help. Which is very true. I get calls from Bill at seven in the morning telling me about things that, that he's seen. And it's very true. It's very accessible. Could you imagine working for me? If I get that idea, ask Chris. You need to have Chris on a podcast sometime. He'll tell you about <laughs> the freaking Slack messages and 3 a.m. phone calls and all that type of stuff. I love it. It's so good. It's so worth it. Bill, seriously, thank you so much. I know you got to get running to go on another trip, but thank you again just for taking the time to share your story peel back behind the curtain and let us see what has led up to where you are today. It's been really incredible to get to know you and your story. So thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It's been a lot of fun and thank you everybody for, uh, for listening. Of course. 
You heard it here first, Slick Talkers. Make sure you like and subscribe everything. Build short-term rental wealth, build faith, anything he's got going on. And we would love to see you guys all again next week. So you know what to do, and we'll see you all then. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our show partners for making Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, possible. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we would love to connect with you outside of the podcast. So you can follow us on all of our social media channels for daily hospitality content or find us on slicktalkthepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and we will see you guys all again next week.